Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Hey everyone, Gil Gross here, and it is time for another mailbag where I answer your hot takes, your questions, your observations, ultimately your comments about tennis or anything else. Over 24 hours ago, I posted on the YouTube community tab where I saw a huge number of comments this week, more than average. I feel a lot of excitement right now in the tennis season with the sunshine double in the rearview mirror. The clay court season has just begun. And uh, it's always an exciting time, I think, year over year. But right now, especially, I feel a lot of energy. And that was reflected in this incredible comment section. I'll tell you right now, this is going to be a good mailbag. There's some great comments here that are going to be a lot of fun to talk about. First one is from Bethman. Hi, Gil. Is Alcaraz more injury-prone, or is he causing injuries to himself by putting his 100% into every point and return? And do you think with the injury he has currently that he will be ready for the French Open? Also, who do you think is the next big three if that exists in the future? Okay, well, I'll answer the last part. No, I'm not going to talk about this. The big three is not going to be something that regularly exists in every era. We might see other instances in the future, in fact, we will, where three players have separated themselves in some way from the pack, and perhaps that will remain that way for an extended period of time, but right now, there does not appear to be any big three on the horizon, and it's not going to be something that we will see, once again, in most eras occur. The second question, do you think he will be ready for the French Open? Most definitely. Most definitely. This, to me, what he is dealing with right now, which is traumatic arthritis, post-traumatic arthritis in his left hand, and muscular discomfort in the spine. To me, neither of those things are bad injuries. In fact, this reminds me a lot of Acapulco. Remember, he pulled out of Acapulco, and there were question marks heading into Indian Wells about what kind of physical state is Alcaraz in because he pulled out of Acapulco with a hamstring issue, and he pulled out of that Las Vegas exhibition. And if you'll remember, my take heading into Indian Wells was, is he injured? Because it would have been smart to pull out of Acapulco anyway. He hadn't played in the three months, three plus months prior, and then he made back-to-back finals in Buenos Aires and Rio. So should he play three weeks in a row after not playing for over 12 weeks or about 12 weeks, I want to say? 
No, uh, you shouldn't play three weeks in a row after that. So I don't, I'm not saying he's faking or lying or anything like that, but if there are any physical issues at that point, it is smart to pull out. When you talk to players on tour, they will all tell you that something is usually wrong with the body. They're hurting somewhere, almost at all times. So then the question becomes, am I going to play through this physical issue or am I going to pull out? And this is another area, this is another situation for Alcaraz where Monte Carlo is not a mandatory Masters 1000 tournament. So you don't get punished if you want to pull out for injury uh, whatsoever. You're still eligible for uh, the bonus pool, for example. There are some things that people don't really pay attention to because it's boring financial stuff. Uh, and we might get into it later in the mailbag if I get to the Tsitsipas comment. But for example, anyone who is a top five performer at the end of the year in Masters 1000 tournaments, they get cut a check for like a million dollars. I think it's more than, it's upwards of a million dollars uh, for your performance in Masters 1000 tournaments. It's, it's called the bonus pool. If you miss a Masters event, you are ineligible, but I think you might be able to miss uh, Monte Carlo. And I know that you are not uh, eligible for, or you're not held to the same standard with Monte Carlo as you are for the other Masters 1000 tournaments in terms of being uh, <clears throat> incentivized to play it. And with Alcaraz going deep at both Indian Wells and Miami, it makes sense to skip Monte Carlo here. And he's Spanish. He's going to want to play Barcelona. So where's the rest here? Where's the break? Is he just supposed to play all the way through until Roland Garros? Maybe, you know, a week off before Roland Garros? It's probably not the best way. So I'm, unless he pulls out, as far as I'm concerned, and again, I'm not calling him a liar. I'm just saying, let's think about this logically. Unless he pulls out of his next event after Monte Carlo, then it's not, a, it's not really an injury to me. It's just, all right, there's physical issues that naturally comes as a result of playing four straight weeks of tennis, and I am going to rest these physical ailments because there's no reason for me not to. Where if you are, you know, 60 in the world and you're trying to stay in, in, in terms of the rankings, you are trying to maintain a, a ranking that's going to get you into Masters 1000 tournaments, or perhaps you are a little bit more financially uh, pinched, you might play through these things. But if you're Carlos Alcaraz, you pull out. You pull out. First part of this comment is, uh, is Alcaraz injury pro prone or is he causing these injuries to himself? Well, in Miami or with the left hand thing, he did cause that. He caused the, the left-hand injury. He did not slip. This was not an incident where he slipped. This is an incident where he dove to make a return, essentially. It was on the ad side. Sinner cranked a wide serve. Alcaraz launched his body weight at the ball in a way that was going to make it impossible for him to not basically fall on his face unless he caught himself with his left hand against the hard court. So this was an instance, and most tennis injuries aren't like this, but this was an instance where Alcaraz took a, a bit of a gamble with, I almost don't want to call it loss of body control, but I will say kind of a, a reckless, not reckless, that's too negative a word, a, 
I don't know, a risky movement on the court. Anytime you dive, obviously there's some risk there. But the way Alcaraz is wired is he's trying to get every ball back with every fiber of his being. And in my post-match analysis, I talked about the fact that that might be something that's really, really hard to change. And I'm not sure I would change it because you need to be careful with altering his psychology. And right now his psychology is and his personality is what's driving his decision-making when it comes to diving for a ball like that. And is that going to cause some issues potentially from time to time? Yeah, but I, I, if I'm his coach, I'm probably letting him just grow out of that instead of trying to step in here and alter these split-second decisions that he makes on the court that can be categorized as fairly reckless. But the the good part is he's giving 100, 100% effort. And that's the, the crux of why he's doing these things. But again, like, was he actually injured after Buenos Aires? Sure. But like, was it a problem? Not really. He won Indian Wells the next week. It's it's good that he didn't play Acapulco. He shouldn't have. So what, what am I going to, am I going to dock points from a durability standpoint from Carlos Alcaraz? Not really. If he plays his next event, I don't know exactly what it is. Is it is it Barcelona? Uh, let me let me take a quick look at the calendar here, actually, because I'm curious. Uh, no, it's it's Monte Carlo, actually, Monte Carlo, and then Barcelona. So, oh, what am I talking about? It is Barcelona. Wow, I'm a genius. All right, I won't edit that out. Yeah. So, I if he pulls out of Barcelona, then then maybe. He's defending champion at Barcelona, right? I think so. All right, next comment. From Avi. Hey, go. what is your opinion on the absence of a Grass Masters 1000? I am well aware of the hardships in maintaining grass courts and the unbelievably tight schedule of the players. But nevertheless, I think there is something quite wrong with there not being at least one Masters 1000 on the historically traditional surface of tennis. It is unfair to the surface, and it is unfair to the players that play well on grass. I'm not even talking about the extreme shortness of the entire grass season. As always, thanks for your deep and truly insightful content. Thank you. That's very nice. Look, my opinion on this has always been the same. The fans want it. The players want it. And there needs to be a Grass Masters 1000. I think it needs to be Hamburg. I think you push back Wimbledon. I think you can do this. Are there weather issues? Maybe my Londoners can weigh in on this, but are there weather issues? No, I don't think so. I think you can push back Wimbledon, and I don't think it affects the grass negatively or anything like that. I think you push back Wimbledon a week, and Hamburg, which used to be grass, you give them some money. You give them a hunk of cash if you're the ATP, and fund that that change for them and make it a grass court masters there would be much more juice in that tournament they it are it's already a, a huge stadium i believe it's like twelve thousand seats i don't know what the outer courts look like but that used to be a masters 1000 in hamburg so it used to be big enough you know the facilities for a for a 1000 and now it's a 500 but it's a clay court tournament after wimbledon come on now it, it's a it's a waste to to have it like that. That should be the premier event in Germany, Grass Court Masters 1000 leading up to Wimbledon. 
This comment got 25 likes. Everybody wants this. The fans all want this. By the way, Andrea Gaudenzi, the head of the ATP, he wants it as well. He has said as much. So I think it's going to happen at some point. And that, to me, Hamburg is the logical event to step up. Next one is from Dalia. Hi, Gil. Given that for a third year in a row, Novak has had a long break before Monte Carlo, do you expect another clay season in which he starts slow and only reaches good form around Rome, or do you believe that will change? He was pretty good in Madrid. I know he lost to Alcaraz, and and I don't know. I've, I've seen a lot of... I see it all the time in comments about that match that Djokovic wasn't himself, but... If he wasn't 100%, then he was 95 or he was 90 or, or something like that, right? I mean, it was an incredible tennis in that match. The quality was through the roof. I mean, Novak was playing well. All right. But the question is basically, how's Djokovic going to be looking right off the bat here? And I see no reason for the trend to be any different. You know, we have that loss to... Uh, we have that loss to Davidovich Fikina last year. Was the year before Dan Evans? Am I remembering that correctly? Let me have a quick look at that. When's the last time he's done actually well at Monte Carlo? Where he has a residence. Like, we know that he gets plenty of training on that court. But it has not resulted in good Monte Carlo results uh, in a post-2016 world. Uh, so he lost in 2016. Well, 2016 was bad as well. Yuri Vesely, first round loss in 2016. 2017, quarterfinal loss to Gafan. 2018, round of 16 loss to Team. 2019, quarterfinal loss to Medvedev. 2021, second round loss to Dan Evans. And 2022, a first round loss loss to Davidovich Fikina. I, I shouldn't be saying first round. I'm kind of messing that up because you get a buy. So first, when I say first round, just make that first match. I don't see any reason for this to change. So to me, it's a cardio problem and cardio takes time. You need to play some matches before you get the lung capacity. And at Monte Carlo, it's the slowest clay court event on the circuit. Plus there's wind. So it's hard to play effective offensive tennis it's hard for the serve to do a lot of damage. And as a result, you end up having to play a lot of longer rallies in Monte Carlo. And Djokovic, it's been a perfect storm of long rallies, bad cardio. That's what's happening here. So the shot tolerance isn't there for Novak. And you need good shot tolerance at Monte Carlo. I don't see why this changes. Because there's no reason for Djokovic to change the way he has approached his training schedule because he's done such a great job of peaking for Roland Garros, which is ultimately the goal. Next one from Sam Collins. I believe this was the top-liked comment. And thank you, Sam, for being a member. Hey, Gil, what's your take on Runa's season so far? Safe to say it's been a bit underwhelming. When I've watched him, he's looked like he doesn't quite know what his game style should be. Sometimes he plays super aggressively and misses a lot, and other times he grinds like Carbias Baena. Would love to hear your thoughts. Thank you for all the great content. Well, Sam, I've had the same exact observation. The shot tolerance is not, sorry, the shot selection is not there for Runa. More often than not, I think it's been 
just overly aggressive, especially on the backhand side. I feel the backhand has been killing him. He's going nuclear on it on a regular basis, and he's not building points. And it's not there. He's playing low percentage shots. I think on the plus one forehand as well, he, he doesn't respect a good return. When you make a good return, he's still trying to crush the plus one. So I don't think he's valuing every point right now. It's almost like in basketball, a team that's turning over the ball because they're just not being careful enough. For for Runa, that's almost that's almost what I'm seeing. Or a quarterback that throws too many interceptions. He's trying to make the perfect play, trying to hit the perfect shot, and you can't. You have to recognize the incoming ball and make a read. Is it attackable or is it not attackable? You have to feel that out. And I don't think Runa's feeling that out right now. On indoors, that hyper-aggressiveness will be rewarded more. In still conditions, when you're not dealing with any wind, your timing is going to be perfect. The flight of the ball is going to be more predictable. And those small margins, especially if you're very, very confident, uh, you're going to be able to, to land more of those high degree of difficulty shots. But when you're outside in wind, and especially when you're on slower surfaces, maybe you're getting a little bit less out of your serve, you have to be able to display some patience. And then on the other side of the coin, I agree with you that sometimes he's been like, oh, I want to make more balls now. And now he's not going after balls that he can be going after. So shot selection is not a predetermined decision. That's strategy. That's strategy. But... But it's not strategy right now, even for, for Runa. It's just a, a a lack of solid point construction and dynamic shot selection. And that, to me, has been what's missing. However, uh, I do want to kind of analyze the premise of the comment. The premise of the comment is that Runa's season has been disappointing. This is a, a, a little bit of an I told you so. A little bit for me. Because... He's 14-7 and seven on the year, Runa. And he's made two semifinals. That's not very disappointing, honestly. Uh, let's see where he's at in the race. That'll be interesting to look at. It's disappointing compared to what I believe coming into the year were unrealistic, outsized expectations for a 19-year-old who had a great indoor hardcourt season over the course of the fall. And I, I say it every year. He's 15 in the race right now. <laughs> that's that's good. I mean, that's not bad. I, I'm sure he he maybe he's frustrated. Maybe if he were watching this video, he would say, nah, Gil, I got to be better. It's been disappointing. But I'll tell you what. He's 19 years old. He's He should be getting better as this season progresses. And he's 15 in the race right now. And he's got good surface versatility. Uh, and, and he's shown that he's really good indoors, so maybe he can have a big fall once again. But is that disappointing, or were your expectations just too high? Because I picked him before the year to finish ninth at the end of the year, and I read the comments of that video very carefully, and there were a lot of comments that said, Gil, Runa's too low. He's way too low. I didn't see any comments that said, Gil, you have him too high. Not a single, I didn't, I don't remember anybody saying you're, you're overrating Runa. He's too high. I had him at nine. Most people thought that was too low. And 
I'm not surprised that there's been some growing pains. In fact, I, I think I used that exact words, those exact words. There are going to be growing pains because you got to beware of the indoor hardcore season. You got to beware, beware of the small sample size. That being said, he's going to be great. He's going to be great. He's going to be an amazing player. He works unbelievably hard. He is incredibly talented. He wants it as bad as anybody. He's got a good team around him. He's going to be great, but he's 19 and he is not. I mean, maybe, maybe it's because of Carlos Alcaraz partially that the expectations were so unbelievably high for him, but man, to expect a 19 year old to have, you know, play like a top five guy, it's just not generally realistic. And I know that Runa was spectacular and I know that what he did at the Paris masters was unbelievable, but you got to be aware of the history there that that kind of thing can happen sometimes. And he's just not mature yet. He's got a lot of development to go. Next one from either AJ or AJ. Mr. Baines, frequent commenter. Always appreciate his support. Gil, always love your takes. Thank you. Has Wimbledon turned into a cakewalk, cakewalk tourney for Novak? The irony is that the Rafa haters always said that the French was too easy for Rafa, yet in recent years, it appears to me that the competition at RG is way tougher than at SW19. Gone are the days of Sampras, Becker, Goran, Rafter, where Pete, who in my mind is the greatest grass court player of all time, had to face many elite grass quarters. 7-0 in finals is MJ-esque, along with Joker in Australia and Rafa at RG. I agree. Would love your thoughts on the difficulty of opponents currently between RG and Wimbledon. Tsitsipas, Sasha, as well as Alcaraz now seem like legit threats to actually challenge for the title along with Rafa and Nole. And had it not been for the recent struggles of team, he was also capable of knocking off the best on that surface. Chapo, Matteo, Nori, and Nick were the two semifinalists for Nole for the past couple years. Just doesn't strike fear into me. I respect those guys, but just want your take. Cheers, man. Yeah, look, the grass court level is low right now. <laughs> Last couple years, anyone who denies that probably has an agenda. There's been a reason for that. Uh, part of it is, hey, going back to the comment about the Masters 1000, another reason why we should want a grass Masters 1000 is so that the young players get better at Wimbledon more quickly. Right now, we are in a situation where players don't have enough grass court experience until they're 24, 25 years old because the grass court season is so short. It would be nice for that to change so that the, the younger players can just get up to speed a little bit quicker and contend at Wimbledon. But you're right. There has not been any legitimate tier one at Wimbledon for, for many years now. Um, you know, I feel like Rafa, if he hadn't been injured uh, or if he hadn't gotten injured at Wimbledon last year, would have been, you know, a tier one grass opponent with the form that he was in because he was playing really good tennis. But and and Kyrgios, I have a ton of respect for his level in 2022. So I think 2022 Nick Kyrgios is a really dangerous guy. The thing is, he hasn't shown that he's going to show up to Wimbledon year after year after year like that guy. Uh, because he has the, the main thing is that he's had trouble staying healthy. You know, the other thing is he's had trouble staying motivated. And those two things have gone hand in hand. But uh, obviously, Kyrgios has kind of faded. No one's really talking about him right now. 
uh, which is kind of amazing because in 2022, he was front and center, really. I mean, he was, there was a lot of airtime or oxygen dedicated to Nick Kyrgios last year. And unfortunately, that hasn't been the case this year because he's been injured. But what you're describing is a fact that on clay, you have Tsitsipas, who's elevated by the surface. Uh, you have Alcaraz, who... Clay versus grass. I mean, it doesn't feel like that's kind of a competition. Uh, we've we've seen with what Sinner does, Alcaraz can be rushed on the fastest surfaces in the world. Um, I don't think the low bounce helps him either. But because Alcaraz has the, the the serve that where that development has kind of lagged behind the rest of his game just a tad and the pace absorption isn't amazing at this time he's not going to be as good on grass as he is on on clay which is significant and those are, those are the main ones then you could say medvedev he hasn't been good on on the grass either uh, because of his, I think his return position has been a big issue at Wimbledon with guys uh, like like Hercotch playing beautiful net rushing tennis against Medvedev's return position on grass. Really tough for Daniil to be as successful uh, with the scrambling and the passing shots, with the ball staying so low and with his movement being compromised compared to what he's able to do on a hard court. Not a lot of grass court contenders. Yeah, no doubt. From Road to Dawn, who would you have as the second favorite for Monte Carlo? Tsitsipas or Sinner or someone else? Also, which player outside the top 10 and besides Rafa could you see having a big clay season? Look, here's what I'll say about Monte Carlo. I'm not going to like preview Monte Carlo right now. That's a separate show. But I think somebody weird is probably going to win Monte Carlo. I'm not high on Djokovic. I'm not high on Sinner. I'm not high on Tsitsipas. I don't know who I'm high on. I think somebody weird is going to win because you have a lot of guys who are have played too much tennis and are coming back from Miami, and that's a nightmare. That's way harder than going from Miami to Indian Wells. Sorry, Indian Wells to Miami. To go deep at Indian Wells and then to play well at Monte Carlo, I think that's super tough. Tsitsipas, you have health issues that I'm concerned about. So somebody weird is my answer. I don't have a second favorite. I don't know. Who outside the top 10 besides Rafa? That, that, that man, that's a weird statement. Who outside the top 10 besides Rafa? Well, we haven't been able to say that in 15 years. Um, let's see. I think Nori can have a good big clay court season. I think he's really good on the clay actually. Unless you can take advantage of the unique attributes of his backhand, there's a lot to like about Cam Norrie's clay court game. I think Berrettini will pick things up a little bit here. You know, he's 22 in the world right now. I think clay court season is where he's going to start to get things going. To what extent? I don't know. Is he going to beat elite players? No, I don't think so. Not a lot here. Not a lot here. Sarindolo, I mean, he just needs to improve the serve. Uh, 
severely. And and if if he does, you know, even on clay, it's even on clay. I don't think it's good enough. Anyway, I'm not going to keep going through players, but yeah, no names totally jump out at me and slap me in the face. I I can tell you that. Next one is from Vishnu, who is a member. Appreciate that. Hi, Gil. Re-asking from last week. I have a question about players who have great and huge serve, but lack great movement on the court, like Isner, Karlovich, Cressy, etc. I feel that these players' skills and attributes are more suitable for the doubles game than the singles, and they would have had greater success in doubles if they had played more and concentrated more on doubles. For example, a player like John Isner could have easily won a few grand slams in doubles if he had teamed up with some good doubles partners. But at the end of the day, tennis is an individual sport, and it's a player's passion and wish to decide whatever he slash she wants to play. But I would like to hear your thoughts on this topic, and what would you suggest the players with the above-mentioned skills and attributes to follow their passion and play singles, or to understand the skill set and play whatever best suits their game style and have a more successful career? All right, I saw a crazy stat the other day, guys. Crazy stat. My mind is blown at this stat. There are only three players in the top 100 of the ATP doubles rankings who are less than 25 years old. Three players. What does that tell you? It tells you young players are not playing. They're not playing doubles. They're pursuing their singles career. And so often, the reality of doubles is that when singles fails, you go to doubles. It's the backup plan. The reason why Isner, Karlovich, and Cressy do not focus on doubles is because they can play singles. That's the reason. And the reality is if you can play singles, you do. I've heard that, you know, it's kind of like basketball versus football. This is kind of a very American thing. But if you grow up in the U.S., you know, football, American football, it's such a brutal sport where, you know, you literally, unless you are very, very lucky, you play particular positions uh, that maybe you can avoid the physicality of it to a certain extent. But generally, if you play football professionally or at the college level, you are going to have head trauma and it's probably going to affect your development, you know, later in life. Uh, It's really, it's really awful. You know, it it takes a toll. It really takes a toll. If you're talented enough to play basketball, you play basketball. And if you don't, if you're not talented enough to hoop, then you play football. It's not always true. It's a generalization. But it's the same thing in singles and doubles. If you can have a successful singles career, well, that's what you do. It's a pride thing. It's an ego thing. It's also a financial thing. Uh, Remember, even for whatever the prize money can be on the doubles tour, and I think it can be really, really good. The reality is these players are making more from endorsements, racket deals, clothing deals. And in order to get, have commercial appeal, you got to play singles. You're not going to get the same money endorsements-wise unless you're the Bryan brothers uh, through doubles. So that's another aspect to it. Even if the prize money is comparable, the money at the end of the day is not. So you're never going to have players who can be successful in singles 
uh, choosing to play doubles. Not going to happen. I do wonder why there aren't more players, especially young players, though, who are playing doubles every week in addition to their singles because developmentally, I think it reaps huge benefits and most of the kind of older players who I ask tell me, I ask this question all the time to, to former players who I get to talk to and they all say, yeah, these young, you know, these young players should be playing doubles to work on their serve, to work on their return, to work on their volleys. Plus, if you're not someone who loves practice, it's a great way to avoid practice because you get to play a match on your off days, usually. Next one is from your friendly GA pilot. Quite the username. What's a GA pilot? I don't know. Hi, Gil. Thank you for the great content and analysis as always. You're very welcome. Two questions. One topical, one not. First one. Sinner has been playing his best tennis and has improved so much over a couple years. Always had a great head. Improved his serve tons. His returns are elite. Yes, his cross-court backhand is wonderful. Great pace. What's needed to him for him to make... Wait. What's needed to make him be as, a, as strong a competitor, quote, against the field? I think that's a reference to what I was saying after the Alcaraz match where I, I was saying that when Sinner and Alcaraz share the court... They look like equals, but against the field, they're not equals, and Alcaraz still has an edge. Well, let me go piece by piece here. You say he always had a great head. I'll argue with that. I'll say he's improved vastly his feistiness on the court, his killer instinct, his eye of the tiger, his ability to get the crowd involved. I think he's gotten a couple of extra percentage points by playing with more passion and therefore fighting a little bit harder. And man, there were a lot of matches where he didn't have his best tennis and things were tight and he wasn't feeling it and he gritted out victories. That was my favorite thing of, of Sinners 2022 was I thought mentally he took a leap. So always had a great head? Sure, but... I think he made a, a big improvement last year mentally. Improved his serve tons. Yes, I agree. Two miles per hour faster on average here in 2023. A player who has been willing to tinker with the technique, which I admire to no end. But it's not there yet. He can get more accurate. He can hit it bigger. Work to be done. Returns are elite. Yes, I agree with that. I love his return. I love his return to serve. I think it's phenomenal. Cross-court backhand, wonderful. Yup. I don't know if his down the line is ever going to be quite as wonderful as his cross-court backhand because his natural timing, he, he doesn't have the gift of timing to the extent that he has the gift of power. And that's okay. Some players are just like that. What I like about Sinner is he understands that about himself. And as a result, you know, he's not a player who is trying to hit very precise redirections with his backhand down the line because he knows if he tries to do that and it's not there, he he's going to miss it more often than not because it's not his strength. So I don't think it's a huge problem. And, and the backhand is also uh, a strength. Great pace, yes. The one thing you're missing, you say, you know, what's needed to for him to be a, as strong a competitor against the field. Look, I think there's still work for him to do on the legs and athletically. And that's another thing that, 
he has improved. This offseason worked very hard on making the legs stronger. He is more explosive as a mover into the corners. He is holding up physically better as tournaments progress. One of the big issues with him last year was he had an atrocious record in quarterfinal matches. He was 2-8. and eight. He was underperforming in quarterfinals. And throughout his career, he hasn't been a great you know, late tournament player, especially in big tournaments. Now, he, he has won plenty of titles. I mean, 21 years old, I think I think seven titles, if I'm, I'm going off memory on the number, I think seven titles, which is really, really good. So take that statement with a grain of salt. But physically, there was always work to be done. He has started to, to do that work, but I think there is some extra. I, I think there's meat on the bone. It's not like Alcaraz, who is a finished product physically, who is one of the most physical players on tour right now, despite his age, if not the most physical. What you kind of left out was the transition game. He generates tons of short balls with his power. Now let's be even more efficient on attacking those short balls and not getting neutralized. Doing that by... Honing in the transition game where you're comfortable hitting approach shots and you're comfortable with that footwork, moving inside of the court, taking time away, and moving through the ball in your approach shot and then hitting really good volleys. And the drop shot. Now, the drop shot is a new addition, but as we saw in that match against Daniil Medvedev, the drop shot is not good. It stinks. So he's got to improve that. Let's go to the next one. Non-topical, what makes Iga so different technically than most WTA players? I heard players like Sakari sort of say that. The precision, the aggressiveness, the tactics. I know she isn't getting as much love recently, but with the clay season coming, hard not to think of her as the favorite in Rome and Paris. Yeah, when players say that, I, I'm almost positive with what they're referring to. It's the topspin. It's the topspin on her forehand. Nobody hits like that on the tour. So Iga quite literally hits a, a different ball. And you heard Pagula say a couple, I think it was after the Roland Garros quarterfinal last year, Pagula was like, Iga kind of plays like a, a dude. Iga plays like a guy. When, when Jess is saying that, what she means is she's got this big heavy forehand that jumps off the court and also optimizes high margin aggression. And WTA players don't really hit like that. They hit flatter. They hit flatter because, because of their physiological... Because physiologically, they aren't able to achieve as much racket speed as men, generally. They still want to be able to produce just as much offense. So what they, what they do is they, they take time away and they hit flat. They flatten the ball out and they take time away. And as a result, they can, even with less racket speed, still be very potent offensively. But Iga actually has an unbelievable amount of racket speed and can just hit a super heavy ball. The level of topspin she hits, it doesn't exist on the WTA Tour right now. So that's why when whenever a, a player on the on the women's tour says that Nobody's like Iga. That's pretty much what they're talking about. The fact that Sviantec's movement is tier one as well is a, a pretty good a pretty good addition to that, right? 
great backhand, good return, but also athletically she's tier one. So it's a special and unique forehand plus the movement as good as it gets. You know, maybe Boshkova, Coco Goff, Kasakina defends so well. Maybe she's not as fast, but she defends so well. Uh, but other than that, you know, I mean, Iga is at that level defensively and with her court coverage. Next one from Ron Robbie. Hi, Gil. With the first quarter of the season behind us, wondering how you feel about your top 10 predictions. If given the opportunity, would you ditch or stick with the following players' predictions given their season so far? FAA, Runa, Rude, Rafa. I don't have this in front of me, uh, but Rude... I mean, look, Rude, I'd, I'd be lower. I, I, it's, it has not looked good thus far. I, I think he's going to get it together here during the clay court season. Uh, Rafa, Rafa also lower. Um, but FAA Runa, I, I think the same. Runa nine, I, I memorize. Uh, where did I have FAA? I don't know. I will take a quick look just so that I can see where I had him. Let's see, twenty twenty three top ten prediction. I am pulling it up. Um. FAA. I think I I think I had him pretty responsible. Seven. Yeah, that sounds right to me. Seven seems fine. Pulled out of Monte Carlo with a injury. Uh, the FAA injury. I'll just say because we're talking about him. Um, the FAA injury. It was one of those injuries. I was almost glad to hear about it because I felt that loss in Miami to Sarundalo was so head scratching and borderline. Just kind of an inexcusable loss for me, or a, I shouldn't say inexcusable. There's always an excuse. This is professional tennis. This is hard. Let me just call it surprising because I thought he started to look better at Indian Wells and the conditions really suited Felix in Miami. And it's a tournament that he's had success at in the past. So I just didn't understand that. 6-2-7-5 loss to Sarindolo. I know Francisco has been awesome in his career at the Miami Open, but it just wasn't a loss that was a good look, in my opinion, uh, for Felix, especially coming off of a January and February that was not as strong as what we saw a year ago in 2022. So now that he said, okay, this knee thing is bothering me, at least it kind of gives me an explanation for what we saw in Miami. In that way, I'm kind of glad to hear about it. Uh, who would you consider moving up in the list given their season? Rublev, Hatchinov, Tsitsipas. No, I wouldn't move up Rublev, I don't think. Uh, Hatchinov, don't think I'd move him into it. Uh, Tsitsipas, I had at six. Mm, I don't know. I don't know. I think, I, I don't know that I'd change that. If I were to redo it, like maybe I would tweak it, right? But I'm trying to be realistic here and not like, nitpick my picks and adjust it one or two spots. Like if you're asking me if there are drastic changes here, the only one is, you know, mathematically Rafa at three seems pretty far-fetched at this point. Even if he does come back and he's, you know, kind of really good, which I think is a, a real possibility. You know, it just doesn't seem realistic anymore. And Rude at number five, I, I certainly question that as well. Um, yeah. All right. Let me check the race though real quick because I'm curious. Um, Hatchinov is number 11 in the race. Where is, uh, where's Rublev in the race? I don't see him. 
he's six. Rublev is six in the race, but you know he he's usually in really good shape at this time of year, and this is where he struggles a little bit more these next couple months. Obviously, uh, we're gonna hit the clay, and uh, grass hasn't been too kind to him either. Even though I feel like it it could be kind to him in in some ways. So all right, let's keep it moving. And I appreciate the nice comments here about the vlog. This is this is great to hear. Uh, he says, or she, never been to a tennis tournament, and it really gave a beautiful glimpse into what it looks like. That's great. That's the goal. That is the goal. So that is, uh, as Tom Wamsgam would say, that is heartening, heartening. All right. From Natalie, which players are you expecting to make the greatest mark here during the clay court season? And are there any players that you think are going under the radar that we should look out for? The first part of this is too vague for me to really answer. Like what players are going to do well? I mean, tons of players are going to do well. So I don't really, I don't want to get into that. But any players who you think are going under the radar, I think I want to shout out Luca Van Asch right now. He's 18 years old. He's from France. And if, look, I don't know that he's ready at the moment, to make noise tour level. In fact, he, he very well might not be ready, but back-to-back -back challenger titles for Von Osh, and I've gotten to see him play a little bit. Uh, he'll get a wild card, I'm sure, into Lyon week before Roland Garros, so he'll definitely play that event, uh, and then he'll play Roland Garros. And he's really quick. I love everything about his footwork and his movement. He takes his backhand down the line really well. Think like Gafan in the way where he, he doesn't actually hit with that much power, but the way he can kind of hug the baseline and change down the line gives him the ability to do quite a bit of damage. And he's consistent and he defends great. So I like a lot of aspects of Von Asch's game. Serve isn't good. And, you know, he's a little bit vertically challenged. So I don't know how good the serve is ever going to be. I worry about his power and, you know, how he's able to kind of build weapons at, at the tour level, especially right now. So I don't know. I'm not saying he's about to have this massive breakthrough, but he's certainly someone, someone who I think should be on everyone's radar if he's not right now. That is, once again, Luca Von Asch. From Thonkos. How do you rate Medvedev's chances on clay this season? I remember you calling him a top 10 clay quarter in the world last year, and he's definitely shown results on the surface despite some poor performances in the past and his infamous ranting. I feel he could be particularly dangerous in Madrid. Yeah, and I picked him to the Roland Garros quarterfinals, which all of y'all thought was a hilarious pick, and then it came true. I made a video about this last year. Uh, I think it's titled like something like Medvedev on clay or Daniil Klaivedev if I got creative. I don't really remember. But everything I said in that video, I stand by it. So you can look that up in a separate tab and watch it after you're done watching this. I don't think the whole 90s thing where players can be tier one on hard court and then on clay, they're not like even a top 15, top 20 player. I don't really think that exists anymore with the homogenization of play styles. So I don't expect that to happen to Medvedev. And last year, a lot of the results that were 
rather poor for Medvedev, clearly came as a result of his horrendous attitude. So if he puts his mind to it, which I think he recognizes and wants to do, sometimes it's hard for him to do it, but I think he does want to do it, then he's going to he's gonna do it and he's going to be a decent player. I'm not saying he's going to beat Alcaraz or Nadal or or a healthy Tsitsipas or plenty of, you know, even other players, right? I, I won't keep going, but I'm not saying he's, he's going to beat the best in the world on clay. I'm not saying that. But is he going to make quarterfinals? Is he going to make semifinals? I think so. I do. From Nathan Roman. This is a bit of a long one. Apologies for that. It's not that long. So I would, uh, I think you're being too hard on yourself there, Nathan. I'd be curious to hear more of your thoughts on how you define mental strength on a tennis court, whether it's playing well in big moments or managing the ebbs and flows of a match well, what that looks like in your estimation. Example, what are some common times in a match for players to have dips in concentration slash what are some good ways for players to handle that? This is a big question. So while the question itself wasn't that long, the answer has the potential to be, and I'm going to resist the urge to go super long on this one. There are a couple of attributes, I think, within mental strength. By the way, I'm glad you asked this because there are way too many, I'll just say pundits, and I'm not thinking of anyone in particular. I promise you I'm not. But too too often it's like, oh, they're so mentally strong. And it's like, what does that really mean? And I feel like we have a responsibility to be more specific than that when we're explaining what mental strength actually is on the tennis court. So a couple of attributes that come to mind. One, focus. How well do you focus? Tennis matches, they're long. And you have to concentrate for a really long time. And if you lose your concentration and you play some loose games and you play some bad points... Maybe you snap back into it, but maybe for five minutes you were thinking about uh, what you were going to eat for dinner or uh, how you can't beat the level on the PlayStation game that you've been really into. And, you know, this happens. This happens to you when you're at work. This happens to everybody. You know, your mind goes adrift. Well... That's part of mental strength is how well do you focus. Second part of mental strength is how do you react when stuff starts going bad? You missed an easy shot. You lost three games in a row. You don't understand your the tactic that you talked about with your coach before the match isn't working. It's really, really windy and the wind is bothering you. You're serving and the sun was in your eyes and you got broken the umpire made a bad call. Bad stuff is happening. I like to call it adversity. How do you respond to that? Do you let it affect your game negatively or not? The third thing is how hard do you try? What kind of effort do you give? Are you constantly willing to suffer? Physically, if that's what the situation calls for, uh, or are you going to, you know, start to bail out, look for the easy way out? Are you going to keep fighting? 
uh, or are you going to not fight quite as hard? You know? So I would say those are the three main things. How hard do you try? How well do you focus? And how do you respond to adversity? From anonymous tennis follower. You are anonymous, aren't you? From the last mailbag. Hi, Gil. Just curious. As an American, do you feel sad when an American loses and you say have to do a post-match analysis on that loss? Because you seem to be able to hide your emotions very well in your post-match analysis videos. Well, am I hiding them or do I just not have them? Oftentimes, it's the latter. I've explained this many times. Uh, the answer is pretty much no. While in theory... I want tennis to become very, very popular in the United States. And in that respect, I might have, I guess, a, a long, a long <clears throat> uh, range kind of big picture bias where like, do I want Tiafo slash Fritz slash Shelton slash Corda to be really, really good? Uh, so good, perhaps, that my friends who don't care about tennis care more about tennis. Yes. Yes, I, I do. I, I do have that desire. And in that respect, I do root for these guys. But am I am I watching them in a random match, pumping my fist? No. No. Do I care when they lose? Like, am I sad when they lose? No, I'm, I'm not. And I, I've said this many times, but... The only time when I'm actually will kind of be invested in the outcome of a match is is pretty much when I make a, a big prediction that I, I would just rather be correct. I would rather it come true than not. For example, like when I pick, when I make a crazy pick, like before Indian Wells, I say Davidovich Fakina is going to make the semis and beat Medvedev. And Davidovich Fakina is playing Medvedev in the quarterfinals. Yeah, it would have been cool if, if ADF won. Like, from my perspective, you got to put yourself in my shoes. Of course, it would be cool if ADF won, and I would want that. It would be it would be better uh, than if I were to be wrong, which I ended up being wrong. But then when it's time to analyze the match, I, I very quickly am able to, I think, shift my mindset into, all right, yeah, I, I was kind of hoping Davidovich Fikina would win, but now let's just dissect why he could not win, could not slash did not win. And, and that, to me, is not very difficult. All right. This is another one that's kind of similar um, from Footfault Tennis. Hey, Gil, I want to ask you about your analytical process. What key stats do you perhaps look out for outside of the basics usually given on screen? What are the most important, in your opinion, to keep an eye on? Just what's your process when breaking down a match and taking notes on one? Also, just another... I know you don't like hypotheticals, but one of my hopes is to see team back to his best and see him face Sinner and especially Alcaraz. How would you see those matchups playing out? <laughs> All I'm thinking of are the poor balls. Look, I'd, I'd love to agree with that more, but team isn't hitting the ball all that hard these days, unfortunately. If prime team played those guys, though, I would say Sinner would give him some issues because he'd take a lot of time away. From, uh, I'm sorry, Sinner would give team issues. Let me be clear. I, I'm not sure I actually 
communicated that correctly. I think Sinner would give team a lot of issues because of how he can hug the baseline and, and take tons of time away. Rublev gives team a ton of issues. Andre Rublev does. So if Rublev gives someone problems, matchup-wise, you know that Sinner is going to be able to do the same. Uh, Alcaraz, Alcaraz team. Mm, tough to say. That That's an interesting one. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be fun. Look, I think aggression is good against Alcaraz. I think hitting really big and heavy is good against Alcaraz. That's a big attribute. So, in that respect, it's good for team. On the other hand, I think Alcaraz attacks uh, deep court position defense really, really nicely, which he would do. So, But I feel like that'd be more more even. I feel like that head-to-head that -head is tough to call, Team Alcaraz. I think that would be a great rivalry. From, oh, wow, I didn't answer the first part. All right, what's my analytical process? Well, look, it kind of differs with the stats. Sometimes I'll be watching a match. This is the best. When my analysis is at my best, I notice something, and then I know what stat is going to be able to basically help me prove it. So if I notice that someone is dropping their returns in the middle of the court and they're not getting any depth on the return to serve. Well, I am then going to go to the rally length statistics and, <coughs> excuse me, I'm going to go to the rally length statistics that Infosys provides and I'm going to look at two things. I'm going to look at how the uh, zero through four shot points played out on that player's serve or perhaps for the match as a whole. And then I can even go shot by shot, and I can tell you that on the plus one ball, so-and-so hit seven winners, forced five errors, and only made two unforced errors. So they had tons of success on the plus one ball. That's the best way to do it, is to watch a match, notice something, and then to go find the stat that is going to kind of prove it. And when, when you know, Infosys and Second Screen can show me most of what I want these days, which is really good. Not WTA. WTA stats are horrendous still, unfortunately. But ATP now is in a pretty good place with that. Um, the other way, though, is, yeah, sometimes I will, or, or when I'm having more trouble figuring out what's going on in the match, well, then sometimes I'll use the stats to maybe give me an idea. And then it can be the other way around. So I'll give you another example. It's... All right, I don't I, I'm not really I don't have a good sense of what's happening in this match. So now I look, oh, okay. Uh let's go back to rally length. Zero through four shot rallies, pretty even here. But once the rally goes past five shots, now it's super lopsided. Now player A is dominating player B. Now my job is to all right, that's on my radar. Let's keep an eye out for that now and pinpoint why that's happening. So always in my analysis, it's the stat tells you the what. I need to try to figure out what the why is. That's the format. That's the format, really. Last one, folks. Let's go. Uh, it was always my plan to go about an hour here. From Sports Fanatic, do you think that Roman Madrid going two weeks is going to hurt Monte Carlo 
since it is a non-mandatory 1,000, would have to play six weeks in a row if you play Monte Carlo, Barcelona, Madrid, and Rome. Already have Alcaraz and Oje Aliassime out, as well as Rafa. Yes, this is a uh, a good comment. You know, it is uh, it's an even tougher schedule in some respects here now that uh, Rome and Madrid are both Two-week-long tournaments, but technically it's not a full two weeks. It is 11 days, I believe. 12? 12? 11? Something like that. You also got to remember that if you are a top player, if you are a top 32 seed, you are getting a bye. So it turns into really a one-week tournament. And for that reason, I don't think we're going to see a huge change in how many players are playing Monte Carlo. The question is more from an entertainment standpoint. I am curious to see if... It doesn't feel as fun because one week Madrid, one week Rome, back-to-back weeks, it feels kind of frenetic. It really moves. It's one of the most action-jam-packed parts of the calendar leading up to Roland Garros, of course. So you also have that kind of intrigue. And man, it's always been a great two weeks. So is stretching that out going to feel better and be more entertaining for the fans. And I'm not sure about that. That could be very interesting to see. What is more certain is that it's going to be uh, profitable. And at the end of the day, that is why the change happened. Because the tournaments realized that if you stretch out the premium product, you are more attractive to your television partners. The Your premium events, your 1,000 events, are going to be pulling in more money because... There's more days, and some of those days are actually weekend days, which are even more sought after and have the potential to be more profitable. So, makes sense from that respect, but I'm curious to, to see how these events are going to end up feeling now that they are dragged out over uh, 12, 13 days. I told you this was going to be a good one. I think I think it delivered thanks to your... Phenomenal comments. Of course, there were a lot that I couldn't get to that I would have loved to get to. Hopefully next time. Appreciate the participation as always. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you it's mean cellar. the mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. It's a mini yeah. fridge. New New episodes of Fly on the Wall and drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wall wherever you get your podcasts.